The year was 2158 AD, and Lou and Emerald Schwartz were whispering on the balcony outside Lou's family's apartment on the 76th floor of Building 257 in Alden Village, a New York housing development that covered what had once been known as Southern Connecticut. When Lou and Emerald had married, Em's parents had tearfully described the marriage as being between May and December, but now, with Lou 112 and M 93, M's parents had to admit that the match had worked out well. Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs. Today we're continuing our special episodes on Kurt Vonnegut in honor of his November birthday, and we're going to cover two more of his short stories. The first one is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, written in 1953. And then the second one we're going to talk about is called To Be or Not to Be, and that one was written in 1962. So let's jump into these two short stories. So let's jump into our first short story, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, written in 1953. This story follows Lou and Emerald Schwartz, and they live in their grandfather's apartment, and they call their grandfather Cramps. Uh, and Cramps also has a bunch of different generations of the family living with him in his apartment. And the reason for that is because the government and scientists have created this anti-gerasone drug or medication that keeps people from dying of old age as long as they take it. And so we see the consequences of this in Cramps's apartment because it's such a confined space and the family members are always fighting over uh, like prime real estate within that little apartment for like their own little space. And so when the story starts, you know, Cramps has the bedroom to himself and then Lou and M have the second best location in the apartment, which is the day bed. And the rest of the family is always kind of fighting to be on Cramps' good side to get that daybed position. And so one day, uh, Cramps and the rest of the family are watching his favorite TV show. And Cramps gets really upset whenever anyone talks over the TV. And Lou kind of mumbles in the background and Cramps happens to hear him. And so what Cramps does to punish him is he writes him out of his constantly revising will and ends up moving Lou and M to the worst position in the apartment and makes them sleep in the bathroom. And Lou's father and mother get moved up to the daybed instead. And so, you know, Lou and M move over there. And one day, Lou's great-grandnephew, Morty, is caught by Lou in the bathroom tampering with Cramps's anti-gerasone medication, uh, kind of diluting it. And if Cramps doesn't get the right dosage of this medication, he just dies of old age. And so uh, Morty's, uh, Lou is trying to fix Morty's uh, tampering with the medication, and he get, gets caught by Cramps red-handed in the bathroom with the anti-gerasone. And so... Cramps doesn't really react at the time, but then 
Uh, a little later, the family discovers that Cramps is missing and the bedroom window is wide open. And so they suspect that maybe in the middle of the night he committed suicide. And so a big fight breaks out among the family because now that Cramps is gone, they all want the prime real estate of the bedroom to themselves. And the fighting gets so rambunctious that um, there were probably complaints from other residents in the apartment complex. And the police show up and arrest the family, all of the family members, and take them to jail. And what they discover when they get to jail is all of the jail cells are much more roomy and spacious than what they had in their apartment living. And they're actually overjoyed at being put in jail when they discover this. And then the story ends with Cramps sneaking back into his apartment and he's finally at peace and happy because he has the whole place to himself without the family constantly bickering over what space they're going to get there. So I want to bring in uh, another guest. Uh, you may remember him from last episode, Alex. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, guys. So tell me a little bit about what you took away from tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, there's so much stuff you can take away from this um, incredible short story. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this one of the earliest um, Kurt Vonnegut short stories? Uh, I don't 1953, know. Um, it appears appears to be right on the earliest stages of the sort of run of science fiction short stories that Kurt Vonnegut wrote. It could be. I know it's included in that Welcome to the Monkey House collection. Yeah, and that definitely was assembled, you know, years later. That was assembled together years later. But for Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow, um, there's two things I took away from this. One was obviously the ethics behind the anti-aging, um, anti-gerosome drug, which is funny because... You called it a drug, and then you kind of rec you correct yourself and called it a medicine. Yes. And I think that's part of the issue, right? Would you consider anti-gerosome a drug or a medicine? And can you, well, one, can you overdose on it? But that that's definitely a, a path you can look at for this is, you know, questioning the things that you can take that would somewhat be anti-human in a certain biological way, like, you know, we're not supposed to age, at, you know, we're not supposed to age up to 180, 200 years old in some case. And so that's definitely an attack on nature um, from that respect. You talk about maybe overdosing, but like midway or maybe three quarters of the way through the story, we hear an ad on the TV talking about super anti-gerosome, which is like a... a, a uh, what do you say? Like a, a, lo a lot stronger. Well, an enhanced version of the medicine that they currently use. Yeah, and so and it has the ability to like make you look like you're younger too. So it removes wrinkles and things mm -hmm. like that. And that's a key point too. Um, the when everyone Kurt Vonnegut is describing this family, he's describing as if they're all appearing thirty, forty years old. Right? It's mm -hmm. it's this sort of they lose the appearance of age. And so everyone sort of becomes physically at an equilibrium in the in this world with full of anti-gerosome, and super anti-gerosome obviously takes a, another decade of physical appearance off of these people's lives, and that kind of that's kind of a funny point is what happens in this world where 
only half the people has anti-gerosome and the other half has super anti-gerosome because there's still probably some sort of financial blocking uh, obstacles in this world. So you're still going to have people that's going to look younger. That's still inevitable that people is going to still look different in this aging process despite all their attempts to e equalize everyone at a, at a um, physical level. Mm -hmm. um, this also leads to a second point that I find it very ironic when they go into the jail cell at the end of this short story and they're all really pleased. And I think that's because the equilibrium effect of their living environment becomes sort of evident that all these jail cells are the same. There's no hierarchy. And the world that we were um, looking at before that was a very uh, top-down level sort of world where cramps gained the bedroom and then it sort of went down and trickled down. The kids got the worst part of this house. And then the jail cells sort of equalized their living standards and this is sort of what they desired but cramps didn't and cramps the oldest one of the family and he desired that sort of pyramid right mm -hmm. yeah it's it's funny because once they're in the jail cell uh lou calls out to him and you know says you got your own wash basin all your own too and uh she says sure wash basin bed light the works ha and we thought cramps's room was something how long has this been going on? And then she holds out her hand and says, for the first time in 40 years, hon, I haven't got the shakes. And, you know, they're all kind of rejoicing over this newfound space that's all their own that they have now. And the guard comes by and says, pipe down or I'll toss the whole kit and caboodle out of you right now. And the first one who lets on to anybody outside how good jail is ain't ever getting back in. So it's something that, you know, the, the police are like trying to keep under wraps too, because they know if other people outside find out how, like you were saying, equal the jail cells are compared to what they would have out there, they would all kind of rush in and try and get there. So, so that would imply, that would imply that in this world, even though we got a microcosm of sort of a view, which is just a single family in this case, in this short story, um, it appears that this is affecting a lot of families in this universe. Mm -hmm. And that's the second point I want to make on that was Kurt Vonnegut's really good about keeping the scale of his short stories small. Yeah. Because you can really go into a lot of different angles. Because I, I'm always very curious about part of the ethics of aging is who, you know, that's, that's accumulative power, right? And the society that we currently live in we sort of give the benefit to the oldest in terms of wisdom. You know, that's always the word of the wise, right? We kind of defer to them. We probably, yeah, we sort of defer to the oldest as being the wisest or even the, if you look at the billionaire class of today's society, they're in their 70s and 80s. And that's because with age, you're able to accumulate wealth, power, etc. And you so, even look at like members of Congress, like senators, like a lot of them are very old compared to the constituents they're serving. Yeah. So Kurt Vonnegut, what he's, I think, hitting on is while you can sort of use anti-gerosone to not die, essentially, you only exacerbate the sort of effect that you're growing power with age. And we're growing past 100 plus years in this short story. And I wanted to bring up a, a point. This story somewhat reminds me of 
Altered Carbon, both the short the um, book and the TV series on Netflix. And what Altered Carbon does a really good job on with aging is that the the meth M E T H class, the methasulas, mm. they've um, they figured out a way to not age using cloning processes, et cetera. I don't want to get too deep into it, but these meths are hitting 300, 400 years old. And these are the most powerful people on earth. And that's all you, that's really what you get with age is power. And this is why I believe when some people want to sort of stop aging, they're sort of implying they want power to, they want more power as well. That's sort of what you get with aging. Yeah. I thought it was really funny. You know, once Kramps arrives back at the apartment at the end of the story, he says, uh, or Vonnegut describes him as his face had changed remarkably. His facial muscles seemed to have relaxed, revealing kindness and equanimity under what had been taunt bad temper lines. It was almost as though his trial package of super anti-gerasone had already arrived. When something amused him on television, he smiled easily, rather than barely managing to lengthen the thin line of his mouth a millimeter. Life was good. He could hardly wait to see what was going to happen next. So you've got this incredibly old guy who shouldn't even be alive anymore, and he's... He's still looking towards the future and is excited about the possibilities of what can come next. And, um, you know, he's trying to preserve this newfound life he has because he hires the best lawyer he knows to give his family a, a strict sentence in jail to keep them there longer. And that's, that's also another interesting point is that the, you know, life, death is part of the life process, Right. And so it's almost like the scientists created super gerasone because they're getting bored, right? Mm-hmm. It's like now they have to be even younger looking to offset the fact that they're still alive. And death, you know, death is uh, inevitable in that process. And they're trying to not only delay it, but just make it even more opposite of death, which is youth, right? Yeah. If, and there's so many, like, consequences that come with you know this longer living population like in the middle of the story you know they talk about the simple task of preparing breakfast and eating breakfast and instead of like traditional bacon and eggs and maybe pancakes what they're eating is like packets of preserved seaweed that have almost no flavor and that's kind of a major part of their diet nowadays because of um, the extreme population growth of the world do you remember what the um, population of the planet was in this time period? I believe it, it was billions and billions and billions, but to the scale much larger than today. Yeah, I don't know if he gives a specific number at any point, but um, you definitely get that idea that it's beyond what we could ever imagine today. Because it is, you know, the planet is very resource limited. And so this is, that's a very key point. We're, so in 2019, we hit hit how many billions? Well, and something else too that I just thought about is I have to wonder like what kind of effect that massive population has on just like the climate and the well-being of the planet. Yeah, yeah, we hit 7.6 billion in 2019. And um, we are we are facing the effects. 
And we haven't even developed an anti-aging. See, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. We haven't even got an um, anti-gerasone-like medicine or drug. And we've already seen these sort of consequences of overpopulation. Yeah. So it's a great, it's a great story by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, in 1953, this man's already sort of predicted a lot of these issues we're facing in 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just loved how his writing style made me feel like I was there in Cramps' apartment and I was like cramped with all these family members and you know the such feel- an ironic name, Cramps. <laughs> Cramps. Yeah. Well, you know that feeling. We all know that feeling when we're at these big family gatherings and there's just some family members you don't gel with that well and it just gets so like uncomfortable and just imagine you can't escape and like go to your own home after that. You're just stuck with them for almost eternity as long as you keep taking your anti-gerasome. I hope some of your family members aren't listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> but Kenneth, this um, is it's a it's a really good short story. And I um, do you want to start the rating process here? Yeah, I'm gonna give tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow a rating of library, which is like the middle ranking of my rating system. And what's your rating system again? It goes from best to worst, bookshelf worthy by library, spark notes, and pass. So I'm giving this one library. What are you awarding it? Um, I'm giving it a buy because this is um one of those this is one of those science fiction story that definitely has a lot of influence in modern day science fiction. The, the sort of notion of bioethics, the sort of family, how, how you sort of um, have to tackle family matters in this sort of strange world. And definitely there's hints of the environment outside of that. I love the way Kurt Vonnegut described where they live, which is sort of a very stoic, it's one, two, seven, you know, et cetera, street. You know, it's very stoic matter of organization in that world. So there's a sort of dystopian appearance. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is very, this is a forerunner to a lot of stories. So I'm giving it a buy on the rating. I'm giving it a buy. Uh, but again, this is under the Welcome to Monkey House story collection. So at this point, you just buy that book and almost all the stories in there are really enjoyable to read. Yeah, so that's 1953's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. After the break, we will talk about 1962's To Be or Not to Be. See you after the break. Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no war. All diseases were conquered. So was old age. Death, barring accidents, was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. Welcome back to this episode of Book Blurbs. Our second short story for this episode is called To Be or Not To Be. And I didn't know this before I started reading it, um, but... To Be or Not to Be is essentially a sequel to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Because in this story, rather than extending the life of the population, we are reading about population control. And the population has to stay at exactly 40 million people. And if it goes over that, someone has to die. And and so it can stay at that number. And so... 
In this story, uh, we follow a character named Edward Welling Jr. He's the not-so-proud father of uh, triplets that were just born. And we also see a painter in the hospital that's painting this mural called The Happy Garden of Life. And the main scientist, he's very revered, almost worshipped in this story, is named Dr. Benjamin Hitz. And he's the one that uh, sort of created and pioneered what's called the Federal Bureau of Termination. And that's the government agency that carries out uh, population control and sets up all these different ways that people can request to be terminated. <clears throat> and then uh, we're kind of like seeing Edward Welling Jr. like uh, agonizing over this decision he has to make because if he wants all three of his new children to live, he has to find people that are willing to give up their own life in their place. And so... I believe he's got one or two volunteers, but he doesn't have a third one yet to uh, <clears throat> sacrifice the life of in place of the child. And so he's agonizing over how he's going to protect his children. And we get more details about this painter doing this uh, piece of artwork. And this woman named Leora Duncan approaches him because she's supposed to have a part of the mural She's supposed to be featured in it along with Dr. Hitz. And uh, while they're t discussing the portrait, the mural on the wall, um, Edward Welling, you know, realizes that it's Dr. Hitz that's over there with Leora and the painter. And he pulls out a uh, gun that he's been hiding and kills Leora and Dr. Hitz. And he declares that now all of three of his children can live because, uh, you know, he's taken their lives. And then he goes and shoots himself and commits suicide um, so that he guarantees their lives in place of his. And at the beginning of the story, when we first encounter the painter, you know, he's very against the idea of the Federal Bureau of Termination but after witnessing this gruesome scene of murder and suicide, he's kind of beside himself. And the story ends with him going over and calling the Bureau of Termination and setting up an appointment for his own execution. So pretty, pretty heavy, gruesome story, but it's super interesting. And I think it's one of my most memorable Kurt Vonnegut short stories that I've ever read besides Harrison Bergeron. And Alex, you're actually the one that introduced me to it, and I ended up doing a project on it in high school. Yeah, so To Be or Not To Be is up there with, like you said, Harrison Bergeron. And it's funny, when you were doing, you, you were doing that project, during that same year I was doing Harrison Bergeron, I dressed <laughs> up as him. This, these two are definitely the most the classic. So To Be or Not To Be, it, it, Kurt Vonnegut takes so many angles of society and wraps it up beautifully in this short story. He takes the um, notion of government oversight. He takes the notion of the ages um, ethic. He takes the notion of sacrifice. He takes the notion of perspective, too. There's three different perspectives. We have the father, the painter, and uh, Leora Duncan. Mm -hmm. And the sort of three, 
three different perspectives on the the whole notion of the ethical suicides and population control. This is a uh, um, to be or not to be is I, I think that was one of my, the earliest short stories of science fiction I remember reading that got me into science fiction short stories and even science fiction in broad. This is one of those stories that captivates this strange world that this is just earth these are people you know that we are well aware of but it's such a strange and different sort of society than we're used to and to be or not to be is a sequel to tomorrow tomorrow and tomorrow because they give so many clues that they're in the same universe the thing that's made it stick out to me and made me realize it when i read through it this time is uh, one of the characters kind of thinks back on how they used to have to eat packs of seaweed. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's from tomorrow that's what, and tomorrow That's what and they ate in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And um, there's a college that was mentioned in there, same name. Yeah. Um, they mentioned the sort of process. And then the Dr. Hitz talks about why they do the, um, why they do population control. Now, this was written in 1962. And I find it very ironic that Kurt Vonnegut uses 40 million yeah. as his number because <laughs> we well were a it. lot bigger than that in 1962. Yeah. And then not only that, we're hitting 7.8, you know, 7.9 today. And so 40 million people is definitely a much lower number. Uh, I'm very curious where Kurt Vonnegut got that number from. If he went back in history, found where we were at 40 million, sort of saw the state of the society um, then. But think about this. When Jesus was alive, we were only in the millions. Hmm. And so we're talking about a period of the Middle Ages. A little before the Middle Ages is where we're talking about the 40 millions. And I wouldn't Way consider- back in B.C. then. Yeah, and so... We're, we're, I wouldn't consider the Middle Ages a successful period in history. <laughs> and so that, that is question why, why that is. And so you can have to dive into that some more. But the, the whole notion of the population control raises the same question as you do with tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Is what is, what, when did it become right to control the population both accelerate it through aging or decelerate it through de-aging where's your line where's your goalpost? yeah and i think vonnegut really succeeds again in this short story um it's amazing how both of the stories tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and to be or not to be are both written and they pretty much take place in one singular setting in this story we're just really in the hospital the whole time and he's still able to really flesh out the world and give you an understanding of what life is like in it and you know you get brilliant scenes like there's a part where you see a hospital orderly coming down the corridor and it says singing under his breath a popular song if you don't like my kisses honey here's what i'll do i'll go see a girl in purple kiss this sad world toodaloo if you don't want my loving why should i take up all this space i'll get off this old planet let some sweet baby have my place And so, you know, in that song, the reference to a girl in purple is like Leora Duncan. Um, All these Federal Bureau of Termination workers wear purple as their uniform. And I think I think Kurt Vonnegut (coughs) is connecting to the sort of notion of royalty. Purple is a lot has a lot to do with royalty and both history and even today's standards with um, 
certain religious denominations, purple symbolizes royalty. Yeah, and there's, they use all these kind of euphemistic terms for um, murder with the Federal Bureau of Termination. So they have different um, packages that you can choose from when you call the number from uh, the Automat to the Easy Go to the Goodbye Mother, the Happy Hooligan, the Why Worry. So it's, it seems like it's very a very thought-out kind of program that they're trying to use to appeal to anyone who would call in. Well, they, they normalized, they normalized death. Yeah. So whereas before well, they, they almost make it sound like a fun thing you would do. Yeah. Well, it's not a fun thing, but they make death a, an ethical choice that you choose to die because it's better for everyone else. Yeah. So all these names almost make it sound less scary and something that, is like a comforting or comfortable yeah, way to definitely. go. And so I want to get to the point of the painting. Yeah, so the painting is called The Happy Garden of Life. And uh, it's clearly meant to be a metaphor or allegory for something. So what did the painting make you think of? Well, it's, it's the Garden of Eden. So when when the guy's painting it, when the guy's painting it, and there's sort of all these people inside this garden... You have all these resources. You have this crop shown in there. And everyone has a task. And this is definitely a reference to Garden of Eden where, if you think about it, there was only two humans in that story, Adam and Eve. You have all the animals and resources, and these things were flourished. And Kurt Vonnegut is trying to make a point that they flourished because there were only two people. Mm -hmm. There was no overpopulation in the Garden of Eden, and there was no worry about the sort of notion of, of, of resource limitation. But what I also find fascinating is that Adam and Eve had no concept of death, whereas we're showing a Garden of Eden where death has to exist and has to be sort of an ethical solution to maintain the Garden of Eden. Yeah, so in the Happy Garden painting... It's very fertile and everything's beautiful looking, but you also see people in the painting that are um, cutting down limbs. And so there's, even though it's beautiful and there's signs of life, there's also signs of, you know, having to um, kill off some things to keep the garden growing. So it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story from all points of these perspective we talked about. And this is such a, I find it very interesting how in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, the scientists were responsible for a bioethical solution that used medicine or drug, whereas in To Be or Not To Be, the scientists created simply a process or an entity. There was no drugs involved. There was no, there's no sort of scientific overreach. This mm -hmm. is just strictly a government program, a government program providing an overpopulation solution. Yeah, and uh, I think you can kind of see the painter as a stand-in for Vonnegut here in this story. Um, do you think the painter is kind of expressing Vonnegut's own ideas about uh, what he's writing about here in this story? Um, well, definitely, because we're all the painter, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, if you're, we're all the painter's perspective. And so that's equally valid. That is also the author's perspective as well. We're, we're not going to see ourselves in Dr. Hitch's position. Yeah. Um, we're not going to see ourselves in Edward's position. We're not going to see ourselves. Was his name Edward? 
Yes, it, yeah, Edward Welling. Um, in Edward's position, we're not going to see ourselves in the um, essentially the executioner, Leora. So, yes, Kurt Vonnegut is the painter in this case. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Hitz, you know, argues that population control increases human happiness, and the painter sees that kind of population control as very grim and dark. But at the same time, the painter also considers war, famine, disease, all less appealing than the Federal Bureau of Termination. So uh, whose account do you find well, kind of more convincing? Well, to be or not to be, I, I would say if you had to pick, because obviously we have two short stories here that is black and white. Yeah. And if you had to pick one, you know, it, it's sort of a method. If you had to pick one... I'm picking to be or not to be because here's why. It's about the triplets and the fact that they brought up the point that the triplets, you know, even though they lost a father and they had two other individuals that were just murdered in this sort of homicide, suicide, homicide situation. Yeah. Those triplets will live in such a good environment resource wise uh, perhaps even a, a financial, you know, there's no, there's no sort of lack of money going around, I'm sure, in this world. And so these triplets are going to live in such a good Garden of Eden type environment from a health standpoint. But the grim reality is I think we're judging it based off of our society against theirs. And I don't blame anyone inside to be or not to be to think this is a good way to live. Because, well, tr- it, it is, mm-hmm. but they're killing people to make. Yeah, that there's work. a cost to that. There's kind cost of to life. That. Um, and Kenneth, I, I want to ask you: once we hit towards the ten billion mark, the twenty billion mark, a choice would have to be made. Yeah. Because we are limited in resources. Now, I have a third. I, I'm, I'm going to mention my third one after your your answer. But which path would you choose? If I had to choose between the world of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow or to be and not to be or not to be, I would definitely pick to be or not to be as grim as the reality of, you know, a life for a life would be Um, just because um, it's just such a stressful kind of confined, cramped world in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and their resources are just extremely limited i mean can you imagine having to eat packets of seaweed every day for your meals well it's funny because to be or not to be is more compatible with our religious and spiritual standpoints because in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow we are essentially dehuman we essentially are going against nature yeah whereas in to be or not to be they're not calling for the killings of children, middle age. They're only calling for the suicide of the oldest people, who's have already lived 70 years. And suicide is consensual. Suicide is when someone, you know, goes out on their own term. And that's more compatible with our worldview when it comes to a religious standpoint, when it comes to sort of how we view the sort of ethics of this situation. And tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow does not yeah it definitely raises some really interesting ethical questions in regards to the voluntary suicide the assisted suicide there's that theme but what was was your third point that you were holding off so obviously this was written in the 60s okay and 
there's certain limitations to what Kurt Vonnegut knew where we're heading. And this is before, you know, this was before we landed on the moon, right? And so the third option is the, it's what I call the Elon Musk option, right? <laughs> the SpaceX. Well, the reason why we're limited in resources, this is what Kurt Vonnegut is trying to hit is, you know, there's resources and there's people. How do you balance the two? And the third solution is you got to have more resources. And this is the whole and this is the whole interplanetary species concept is to grow your resources. And so once humans become populated on Mars, once we become populated on other worlds, our resource to human ratio is slimmer again. And so we don't have to face the ethical problems of aging or de-aging or suicide if we can grow our resources again. And that will solve the issues, I think, a little bit better than mm. what to be or not to be in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow's tackling. Yeah. So it's definitely an impactful story. It's going to stick with you after you read it for a while. Uh, just seeing how the painter changes his views of the Federal Bureau of Termination from the beginning where he's very against it to the end where he kind of succumbs to it is worth reading itself. And also, uh, one final point to make on that. I, I laughed when I read this. It reminded me of Infinite Jest because uh, one you, of the, You've read Infinite Jest? One of the, the, the hardest, not worst, it's one of the best books, but it's one of the hardest books to read. But what Infinite Jest does is it, it, it's satirical on the sort of entities and people. It's, it's a lot of satire. And to be or not to be has more satire uh, from a Kurt Vonnegut standpoint. It's, it's a lot of satire in that story than he has on other stories. And in Infinite Jest, the way you name government programs, the way you name your countries, the way you name where you are, there's a lot of satire. And so the Federal Bureau of Termination is trying to make a point how rigid and stoic it is but how sadistic it is at the same time. Yeah. And so I find that modern day sci-fi does borrow, like I said before, it does b borrow from Kurt Vonnegut's satire as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's get into our rating of the short story here. I'm going to give it, again, on the scale of bookshelf-worthy by library, spark notes, or pass. I'm awarding it the rating of buy. Alex? Bookshelf worthy. This is the best Kurt Vonnegut short story, in my opinion. This is the epitome of what his writing style, his satire, his context of his story, the learning lessons behind the story, the ability to take perspectives of different people, characters. Because he writes in third person, and so this really helps you to look at all the sort of point of view. This is definitely bookshelf worthy. Yeah, so like I said, uh, this was To Be or Not To Be by Kurt Vonnegut and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I did a high school project on To Be or Not To Be in English class uh, that Alex actually helped me film. So be sure to follow Book Blurbs on social media at BookBlurbs19 on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're lucky, I may decide to post that project for you all to see. We do have that video somewhere. <laughs> we'll find it in our archives and try and dig it up for you as a special treat for listening. So Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast Well, again. thank you, Kenneth. And be sure to tune in for the next episode of Book Blurbs. 
thanks for listening to this episode of Book Blurbs. Follow me on social media at bookblurbs19 on Facebook and Twitter. Send me an email at bookblurbs19 at gmail.com. And go to anchor.fm slash bookblurbs to record a voice message that I can use in future episodes. You can talk about a book I reviewed in a previous episode or share your excitement or recommendations for books that are coming out. I'd love to include you and make you a part of the show. Thanks again for listening. My name is Kenneth. I'm your host, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Book Blurbs.